0: Rasulullah, Habibullah, Shafiullah, Nabiullah, he said Zammiluni, Zammiluni, Daffiruni, Daffiruni A mighty task has come before me, I need you here
1: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to Inspirited Minds is the Mindful Muslim podcast, where we discuss Islam, psychology, spirituality, and mental health. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about sexual health in the Muslim community and the effects of pornography on your mental health. I'm Minha, and alhamdulillah, I've been joined by Ustad alias Kalmani. Assalamu alaikum, Ustad.
2: Could you
1: tell our listeners um, about yourself and the work that you do
2: inshallah? Inshallah, most definitely I'm actually delighted to be on this uh, podcast I think this is such an important subject to be talking about Because this is the biggest challenge that we have in our community. You know, Islam as a complete way of life, as a deen, which encompasses every aspect of human behavior, every aspect of the human experience, therefore should be upfront and mature in dealing with all aspects of human behavior and the eventualities of human life. And sometimes we brush issues under the carpet. So, uh, you know, for me, it's so important that we create safe spaces where we can talk about challenging issues. And actually the way of the Prophet was that he would often have these very difficult conversations with his companions and give them guidance on every aspect of human behavior. Okay, a bit about myself. Uh, my background really is as a, as a psychologist, but now uh, I really am a, what I call a holistic psychodynamic uh, therapist. So what that actually means is this. Yeah, I, I don't use a Western Eurocentric model or a medical model in terms of my approach to dealing with people and problems. Uh, I look at things holistically in terms of encompassing both the mind, the body, the soul and contextualizing that within overall muamalat, which is the kind of social reality. And uh, and coming up with solutions in relation to challenging emotional, mental health, psychological problems that they have. I've been doing my work for about 30 years. I work in prisons. I work as an expert witness for the courts. I do have extensive casework in terms of my uh, kind of counselling and therapeutic work. I also run a Muslim charity, a mental health charity, mainly dealing with people of Muslim backgrounds in Bradford called Sharing Voices. And this has been running for nearly 18 years now, deeply doing mental health support work and early intervention work. In, in the Bradford area and is actually an example of best practice and and related to our discussion today I set up a project in 2008 called muslimsexadvice.com one of the first projects that I worked in on in 1991 was a HIV and AIDS prevention project uh in uh Bradford and although I'm from London you know I've been working in Bradford for nearly you know I said 30 years and uh uh, this was a project in 1991 working on HIV, sexual health issues, with, again, mainly the Muslim community. And it was an interesting learning experience back in 1991, where this was a discussion which was absolutely in its primacy. And there was so much misinformation going around this from what a mainstream perspective, as well as from an Islamic perspective. And then you add issues around sexuality, STDs, harmful sexual practices, and it was a challenging issue to work on, but there was some tremendous learning that I went through in that particular project. Based on that, in 2008, I set up a project called muslimsexadvice.com, which was an online service providing, uh, you know, sex education, sexual health guidance, Uh, uh, from an Islamic perspective, firmly rooted in the Quran and the Sunnah based upon obviously mainstream Islamic scholarship. So nothing that I'm talking about is against what Islam is. Unfortunately, you know, we have a challenging environment at the moment. Even when you talk about the subject of sex, immediately this is closed down and people say that this is shameful. You know, I hear in my community, oh, you shouldn't be talking about this issue. And then when I actually show them, look, the quran explicitly talks about this aspect of human behavior and the reason is because it intends to give us the correct guidance and avert ourselves from the incorrect guidance you know the prophet Alaihi some came in essence to give us that which was halal and tayyib and for us to refrain from that which was haram and munkar. that's why i always begin with this verse in the quran from Surah Al-Nahl, inna allaha ya'mur pil wal ihsan wa ita'id al-Qurba wa yanha' anil wal munkri wal ba'ghi which basically means Allah Ta'ala says Allah enjoins on us goodness and I'm paraphrasing goodness and he forbids fahisha which can be sexual inappropriateness wickedness, oppression and so therefore we need to enjoin that which is good and forbid that which is obviously Evil and takes us away from the worship of Allah and so we have to talk about this particular subject and when we set up muslimsexadvice.com 2008 it had you know it was the first service of its kind and it was related to the psychosexual work that I was doing I was finding in my casework that the majority of the cases that I was dealing with with people with mental health problems were individuals who had some sexual basis to their problem it was linked to sexual repression and lots of feelings of guilt and double life syndrome which i'll also talk about and also tragically working with many individuals who were victims of sexual abuse and had to suffer in silence and that left a traumatic effect on them and severely affected their Development and their adult life as well. So, sec, you know, Muslimsexadvice.com and my therapeutic work as the Muslim Sex Doctor, it was a documentary that was done in my work a couple of years ago by Radio 4. Uh, what it identified was that, you know, when you create a safe space for people to talk about this issue within an Islamic context, I want to make it absolutely clear within an Islamic context, in accordance with the Quran and the Sunnah. And people are so shocked about what Islam actually teaches as opposed to their perception of Islam and their misunderstanding of Islam. When you provide that, people will come and people will ask you. And we were inundated literally when I launched that in 2008. We were inundated, we were overwhelmed by the global response people from all over the world calling contacting us on a daily basis. And obviously that was a voluntary project and I wasn't able to sustain it because of the amount of time it was taking up in terms of dealing with complex cases and dealing with people's problems and the counseling people needed and the therapeutic and the workshops and the education program that they needed that unfortunately I wasn't able to sustain it. Now, I believe in 2017, almost 10 years later that the need for a project like that, it's even more acute. And yet we have even less i believe that provides good quality advice from a you know medical from a emotional from a psychological from a social perspective contextualized within obviously islamic uh, uh you know islamic principles we're just don't have that and i find i'm deeply frustrated when i look at the material out there for example I, I think i was one of the first to actually talk about pornography addiction from an islamic perspective i did a video i don't know quite a few years ago and then there was many other people then started who, talking about that particular subject but when i analyze that subject i don't just look at it purely from the haram perspective from the islamic moral perspective which is that this is wrong don't do it it's haram it leads to bad things we all know that already but i was looking at it from the psychological from the perspective of addiction from the perspective of how it affects the mind the body the soul the muamalat our social reality uh how people are the pathways in the pathways out the behavior the whole uh you could say and nature of the porn industry, I also contextualized it within the anti-porn movement and that attracted quite a lot of attention from, you could say, pro-feminists because there was was a kind of synergy that both kind of feminist movement and ourselves were both in agreement that, you know, pornography is deeply misogynistic and profoundly harmful to kind of human development. So, and, and, and just a final kind of aspect of my work, obviously, uh, I've been involved, obviously, in the Muslim community. I'm an Imam, I'm a Khatib, I deliver khutbah regularly uh, at Masajids across the north of England. Uh, just recently, I think I was at Birmingham University, I did the khutbah there in the week of World Mental Health uh, Day, where we spoke about mental health and the Islamic mental health challenge. So, so i am also been doing that for close to 25 years now i have a regular islamic halakha that i do on saturday nights and the last aspect obviously for me most important thing is the work that i do with young people and so i do a lot of youth empowerment youth development work i feel this is absolutely crucial and that's why you know discussions like this are so important as well because young people are starving for a mature discussion on the issues that affect them every day in their lives. We can't close down the discussion. We can't close the space for them to express themselves. We have to create these spaces. And if we don't, then inevitably young people will go on the online space and they will get the completely inappropriate guidance. Now, you know, if a young person wants to learn about a very, very complex aspect of human behavior, sex a very important aspect of human behavior as well because we cannot have the continuation of the human race without it it's really fundamentally important something you shouldn't get right should something you should have a high quality you know good quality advice guidance and support in relation to now they're not going to get that at home let's say they've been pulled out of uh, sex and relationship education within school uh, and also or if they do go within in school you know i'm someone who it's very critical of mainstream sex and relationship education as well. I believe it's uh, you know completely ineffectual in really equipping young people with the knowledge and the skills and the self-esteem most critically to actually uh, you know deal with their sexuality and with hypersexuality in British society. At the moment when they're in those lessons they feel deeply conflicted because they feel it challenges their kind of you could say cultural norms and the islamic norms so they're deeply confused but they want to learn about something so generally in most cases young people going through puberty while learning about a complex aspect of human behaving will do what they'll go on the online space and they'll type in the word sex into google and as soon as you've done that you have actually become misdirected you are lost you have you are absolutely lost and you will not be able to deal with the overwhelming negative and totally Destructive material that will be presented to you, which is in its essence pornography. You will be directed to a whole plethora of free pornography sites, uh, which will totally disintegrate any healthy approach to dealing with the subject of sex. And then you will talk to your peer group about it, more equally as clueless and therefore the blind will lead the blind unfortunately and that becomes normalized behavior for both boys and girls and muslim boys and girls their primary education on such a such a vitally important subject unfortunately is the online space and is the peer group and not mature educators and not people who they also contextualize that education within the islamic kind of value system and within also the cultural reality as well. Uh, And I just want to say as part of my intro, look, you know, uh, we're in 2017, you know, the next 10 years are going to be enormously challenging. The government did a review on the sexualization of children in 2008. And in this review in 2008, that was done by, you know, the well-known psychologist, you know, uh, Linda Papadopoulos, uh, basically, you know, she identified overwhelming evidence in 2008 that, children were being sexualized and what that means is that the imposition of adult sexuality on children the imposition of material that is meant for adults on children and children are completely ill-prepared to to deal with this material both from an emotional from a psychological from a cognitive uh, perspective and this is leading to deeply damaging uh, effects on those particular children what it's in terms of body image and sexualization destroying healthy sexuality links with sexual violence with sexual grooming with sexual objectification it goes on you know uh, one of the things in her report is a girl 15 who was interviewed and she said i'm probably going to get my breasts done she didn't describe it like that unfortunately i have to you know i would like to be really open in my language but i have i'll be controlled because it's a muslim audience and that i think in itself is a problem she goes i'm going to get my breasts done soon it's not really that that big a deal anymore loads of people are doing it that's a girl of 15 in a hypersexualized society being absolutely bombarded with a tsunami of sexualized content whether it's in music whether it's on youtube whether it's in the multiple social media platforms that she's on whether it's in gaming games like grand theft auto for example which is just 500 hours of sexualized pornographic uh, role play uh, which immerses people into this artificial world and has a profound effect in terms of neuroplasticity in terms of actually changing the brain's very chemistry Uh, and that's been identified by the the, uh, world-renowned psychologist Philip Zimbardo who's written a book called Man Disconnected in that he talks about the fact that by the age of 21 american males have been exposed to 10,000 hours of pornography of surfing and of gaming and it's actually changed the very chemistry of their brain and dumbed down their emotional intelligence and that's based on a, a sample i think of 21,000 individuals that he's interviewed so this is having a profound effect now the government's review on the sexualization of young people that it was in 2010 apologies that was 2010 it identified a crisis situation in 2010 We're in 2017 now, and the nature of this whole media is that the technology has moved forward leaps and bounds enormously. And, you know, in terms of smartphones, you know, young people, you know, children's youngest, eight, nine, ten, have smartphones. It is absolutely, that is such a reckless, dangerous thing to do to give a child access to material that they are just not equipped to deal with. And it has a profound effect in terms of. Their cognitive development and their subsequent kind of social conduct and, and behavior in 2017 soon to be 2018 10 years you know eight years after the government repu- review you know we are in an absolute crisis situation we cannot the point i'm saying is we cannot bury our heads in the sand we can't be in denial that there is a problem we have to maturely accept it from an Islamic point of view, the Qur'an, it states that the Qur'an is ala kulli shay, explanation of all things. And also Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, fah, enter into Islam completely. So based on these two principles, we learn that Muslims have to follow Islam as a complete way of life. And the Qur'an, it, you know, addresses, when it says ala kulli shay, it's an explanation of all things. What it means therefore is that the Qur'an deals with everything. And it gives us the framework and the principles and the uh, uh, foundation for us to have guidance in every aspect of our life so that's why there's this principle there's no shyness in seeking knowledge that individuals no subject is out of bounds no subject should not be spoken about but no islam has a mature way of dealing with it to me the subject of sex talking about sex being a sex educator some people actually find this is kind of profoundly incompatible with my role as an imam or my role in the islamic absolutely not it's a subject just like any other subject it's mentioned in the quran and the quran now is not an x-rated book it's not a book which is inappropriate now the quran okay it's guidance for all of mankind And it talks about these matters in a way Which if you read the verses and the tafsir You would be absolutely shocked by So before we move on to our next question There is one overarching principle That I like to make absolutely clear The reason is because you know unfortunately People always get the wrong end of the stick I'm afraid When you all talk about this subject People always want to jump on Oh how are you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? SubhanAllah You know I always start off with that verse I've mentioned Okay you know uh, that, you know, uh, I always begin with this. You know, I'm not here to promote wrongdoing, subhanAllah. But the overarching principle, there's actually only one difference between Islamic sex education and mainstream sex education, only one overarching principle. And that principle is the principle what Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, Do not even come close to zina. Zina, as we know, it means unlawful sexual activity outside of the institution of marriage. So therefore, this is something obviously haram. Okay. Allah Ta'ala only requires, obviously, The act of sexual activities only within the institution of marriage and indeed Allah says this is an immoral way. This is the overarching principle. Don't come close close to zina. And if we observe this overarching principle then alhamdulillah there's, there's nothing wrong with talking about this particular subject at all.
1: JazakAllah Khair for your uh, very detailed introduction, um, Mashallah. I wanted to pick up on a few things that you um, that you said. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask was is there even um, a sexual health issue in in the Muslim um, community and of course you started your work in the early 90s and when you said that I was thinking okay gosh that really wasn't that long ago Um, and then you said that you had started up the Muslim sex advice in in 2008 and you know that really wasn't a long time ago so I know the main issues that you have uh, said that are in your caseloads are usually to do with sexual suppression or um, sexual trauma so are these the most important or are they among the major issues of sexual health um, sexual health issues in the Muslim community
2: okay look there's one big difference between the Muslim community and the mainstream community Uh, and this kind of contextualizes the challenge and the dilemma that we have in the mainstream people talk about stuff the subject is not as much of a taboo subject it's not out of bounds so therefore individuals will at some point get some kind of quality guidance within their own cultural world paradigm and world view so that's the difference you know if someone for example has uh uh, and even in the mainstream let's be also clear i have clients who are non muslims they find it difficult to talk about sex as well the british the british generally are not like other european countries they have a problem talking about this issue they've got lots of hang-ups and baggage as well but that's compounded in our community because we close it down we do not talk about this particular subject so an individual let me give you an example who has a porn addiction problem and i have had hundreds of clients this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg who have pornography addiction and i believe to an extent it's more prevalent because in the mainstream, individuals have some kind of outlet for their behavior and they do not have as much of a moral dilemma in relation to it. They don't feel deeply as conflicted or guilted by engaging in, in, in viewing pornography. However, in the Muslim community, it's much more secretive behavior. It's hidden behavior. It's something where individuals feel deeply conflicted. They feel guilty. They feel uh, you know, deeply ashamed of their actions. And then they will never ever talk to anyone about it and they will live with that guilt and because they realize i can't talk openly if i do i'll be labeled i can't talk about my sins so that's the difference and so therefore individuals will persist with problems without seeking help in relation to sexual abuse there is no more sexual abuse in muslim communities than in any other community there's no evidence at all to state that this is perhaps more prevalent in one community over another community no let us just consider that there is a uniform universal level of sexual abuse in all communities around the world. however in certain communities they've broken what we call walls of silence so that means individuals who are suffering from tremendous terrible abuse and we have this whole now disclosure on a global level of people who are victims of sexual harassment by powerful males and we see these are individuals of all backgrounds my phd is on masculinity and uh, on on violence and sexual violence, and this is something again I've been saying. It's a universal phenomena It's not unique to one community. The factors are the same for all communities around the world. So, as a, as a community, we do not have more or less sexual abuse than any other community. The only difference is there's a suppression. An individual who experiences that will be so reluctant to come forward and talk about it, and will live in silence. Will live and suffer in silence for all their life and i work with uh, individuals who finally come forward and talk about it and that in itself is a very liberating experience which then allows them to move forward to the process of of recovery so when i talk about sexual repression what i'm talking about is two elements of that the first is this you're repressing the very conversation around this particular subject you do not create spaces where people can talk about something which is uh, Very important aspect of human behavior. And the Qur'an recognizes there are three purposes of sex. One is that it's a release valve. It is there for pleasure. So Islam makes it very clear that the purpose of uh, uh, sexual activity is pleasure. Alhamdulillah. Second is obviously procreation, which is the continuation of the human race, which is very important. And this is why I always say, as people who don't talk much about sex, we sure do have a lot of it because obviously we've got a lot of kids alhamdulillah okay uh that's a joke in case people just take that too seriously yeah and then the third element obviously is that sex is actually medically beneficial it's something which helps and this is actually in the books of nabawi medicine of the prophet prophetic medicine books that you know it helps you talks about the release of bodily fluids and the you know if, you, if these fluids are allowed to build up this can be actually quite detrimental to both male and female health and this is actually you know sexual activity sexual functioning is actually actually a, a good part of important physical health and emotional and psychological health as well so when we talk about repression first aspect of repression is not being able to talk about this matter which means that where do people get guidance? And also good quality guidance, not black and white yes and no answers, halal and haram answers, but answers which actually deal with the complexity of some aspects of of individual's behavior. I've had individuals who have suffered for years with simple problems that could have been addressed with five minutes of, of a mature discussion. And they suffered for years and years because they couldn't feel that, they felt they couldn't talk to it. So that's the first aspect of the sexual repression. The second aspect of the sexual repression is that you know as a community obviously we have a very strong moral code as i mentioned زنا, do not come to zina zina is something haram you know Allah says do not make zina do not have sexual relationships relations outside of the institution of marriage one of the maqasid of the sharia is the protection of the family unit and so this is a very important aspect and uh, so therefore what this means is that when young people are the age of being married and they are prevented from doing so and they're living in a hyper-sexualized society. So therefore they're repressed from having a natural expression of their sexual activity. And yes, the Prophet Wasallam did tell the shabab to fast, but that's the shabab. But when you go into adulthood and you're still required to have abstinence and control and repression in an environment of hypersexualization where you're being bombarded, it just does not correlate it does not provide a solution to this particular challenge that we have so people have to wait often years and years i have a case of one young man and uh you know he's deeply depressed deeply frustrated he's got obviously and and females as well you know let us not this is not just a male phenomena we have to be very very clear okay this is both men and women mostly men and women he's what 22 23 He's got t- testosterone raging through his systems. His system. He wants to be married. He's got, obviously, a higher sex drive, because just the way he is. And he wants to be in a relationship. He wants to be married. He wants to be sexually active. Okay, he's praying. He's doing all the things. It's a daily battle for him to keep away from haram and falling into to zina. His parents say, you can't get married. You can't get married. And they're extremely prescriptive and this and that no one's providing a solution for this individual so that's the second aspect of sexual repression that takes place when you repress something as powerful as the sexual urge when you repress it and do not channel it look islam channels things into a halal uh, outlook out, uh, outlet that's what islam does it does not say don't do it i'll give you an example this verse in the Quran sums up the whole dilemma. It's a verse in Surah Al Baqarah 187, You know, where Allah Ta'ala says, And now, this is an interesting thing. It's like, Allah says in the Quran, It is made lawful for you to have sexual relations with your wives on the night of the fast. And then there's the very beautiful verse which comes after it They are a garment for you and you are a garment for them. And, you know, if you look at this idea that we are the husband and wife, they are garments for one another, you know, really what it means is that their naked bodies actually are garments for each other. It's a very beautiful description, Alhamdulillah. Anyway, the point here is this, and I have this live memo because parents say, we don't want to teach our children about this subject. We don't want to talk about this subject. So they repress the discussion. But I says the Quran talks about it, your son and your daughter will read this verse. It is made lawful for you to have sexual relations with your wife on the nights of the fast. And they will get reward of one, 10, uh, ten rewards for every harif they recite of the Quran. And then they will ask you, Ami Abu, why is it halal for the man to have sexual relations with his wife? And you'll say, son, daughter, you don't need to know this. Just read it but don't understand it. That in itself sums up our dilemma. Okay, they're reading a verse which talks about sexual intercourse. And uh, and yet, you know, when they want to know the explanation of it, even if it's a child, I you know, at the end of the day, I believe that it should be done in a way which is age appropriate. Okay, and this is again, as I mentioned earlier, the Prophet he came. يَأْمُرُ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ He came to command that which is good, and he came to forbid that which is wrong. He taught us the halal, that which is tayyib, and he told us to refrain from the unlawful khaba'ith. And you know the Prophet ﷺ would address, if you read the books of hadith, and Islam, as I said, is a complete way of life, you'll find that these principles are on, on what we call adab of zafaf, the matters of sexual intimacy, are explicitly mentioned, explicitly mentioned in the Qur'an. And then when I actually go into more detail into this, and this is what, you know, people find they don't want to, perhaps uh, uh, you talk about it. I'll give you another example. You know, the Qur'an, throughout the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala, He uses the words, يسألونك, and they ask you sawal. They ask you, they question you in relation to. So what this establishes is a general point throughout the Quran. So Allah says in the Quran, an Allah Ta'ala says they ask you about alcohol, الخمر, or that which befuddles the mind, intoxicants, and pornography falls within this category, as I will try to explain later. والميسرين. And they ask you about gambling. Okay, so they asked the Prophet, you know, uh, in other parts, they you know, this this is mentioned, you know, uh, they would ask okay. these questions of the Prophet. It meant that the Prophet was available to his companions, he engaged with them in, in discussions on all matters of uh, human behavior. They asked a question, and the Prophet gave the Jawab, he gave the answer. Similarly, in Surah al baqarah Allah ta'ala says they ask you concerning menstruation. So they would ask the Prophet sallallahu about this matter of sexual health, reproductive health of females. And I, in my sex education course, say it is important for the man to know about menstruation, as well as the female, of course. Do you know I've had shocking cases where, you know, young Muslim females going through puberty, pulled out of sex, ed- sex education classes because it's deemed to be immoral and haram, but then parents do not provide an alternative, have not even explained to their daughters what Allah Ta'ala has said in the Quran that they are allowed to question about, about menstruation. And they've started their periods and they don't know what's going on. I've had numerous cases like this. It's shocking, absolutely shocking. And it shows cultural practices, backward ignorance, Okay, uh, dressed up as Islam, falsely, as Islamic kind of puritanism is used to somehow justify ignorance. No. People say, oh, we don't want to talk to our kids about these. They'll get affected by it. No, they're already affected by it.
1: And that must have caused so much discomfort for these young girls who, you know, had no idea what was going on and have nowhere to go or nowhere to talk about it. Um, I mean, I can't imagine being that uncomfortable in my own skin, and that goes to show how that can affect, you know, mental well-being, general well-being, and you know how comfortable it can be to be a young Muslimer.
2: Uh, absolutely, you know, you know, you. This is when that what it leads to what I call double life syndrome and being on twin tracks this whole idea of twin tracks that you actually realize that oh i can't talk to people about something so therefore i get knowledge and guidance from another source on a twin track and that sometimes is in conflict with others people engage you know when when we set up muslimsexadvice.com people would come and they would have feel deeply guilty i'm doing something i need you to tell me whether it's halal haram okay because uh they felt that you know they didn't know what the Islamic guidance was on a particular subject, and they, yeah they feel they feel very negative emotions of guilt, of shame, of uh, feeling lesser, of feeling kind of degraded, or feeling sinful. And they're not sinful, Subhanallah. Okay, and look, yes, something as such as important as menstruation, you know, Allah Ta'ala says they ask you concerning it, and Allah Ta'ala then goes and said, keep away from women. i.e. don't have sexual intercourse with women when they are in their menstrual cycle don't do this. Uh, And so therefore, this, this establishes that, again, we deal with things in a very upfront and mature way in these particular matters okay so so this issue around how does the quran and the sunnah talk about this subject and how do how does the muslim community talk about this subject this is what we could call the islam versus culture debate or we could call this the islam versus muslims debate because sometimes you have got to realize that what muslims do is not in accordance with what islam actually teaches and uh, and obviously the quran is our reference point and then obviously quran qualified by the conduct of the prophet sallallahu wasallam now look this is one of the amazing verses in the quran and when i even explain this to non-muslims they're kind of kind of shocked by it and when i explain this to muslims they're in denial of it so the verse is in surah al-baqarah verse 223 and so allah Ta'ala says in the quran okay your wives are a tilth for you so go to your tilth as you will the term harth it's the tilth as in when you plow the furrow and uh, now so this was explained by ibn abbas great companion who was the specialist on the he was known as taraj jama' al-qur'an so he explained this concept <laughs> go to your tilth when and how you will and the Prophet explained it in absolute detail. He said, uh, "You know, when the, the companions moved to Medina uh, from Makkah, they muhajirun. They married with the women there, and the people of Makkah they were used to having sex, sexual intercourse, in different positions. And one of the positions they would like to do was from behind." And and I'm going to explain this. Yeah. So, but the people of Medina they were a bit more conservative in this matter. So this was brought to the attention of the Prophet, Sallallahu that they used this. They said that the the tribes there they said if someone has sexual intercourse with his wife from behind, but in the vagina, they would become cross-eyed. Okay. And uh, then Allah Ta'ala revealed this verse, It says, go to your wife as you will, i.e. every sexual position with your wife is halal, except that which has been made explicitly haram. And it challenged a superstitious, superstitious idea. So therefore, yes, you can do missionary position, you can do, you know, a man on top, woman on top, you know, from doggy position, whatever it is. Okay. And you know, some people might feel uncomfortable. I don't feel uncomfortable. This is a verse of the Quran says, go to your tilf as you will. And that, and in the same hadith, this whole principle is established. The prophet said every, uh, uh, yes. He said, every position is allowed. Have sex with her as long as it is in the vagina and not in the anus, not anal sex. Now, this is that verse I mentioned earlier. The Prophet ﷺ told us that which was to differentiate from that which is khabaif. It's a very important principle that Imam Shafi'i also then establishes in his general kind of principle on fiqh that regarding ibadat, worship of Allah Ta'ala, everything is haram except that which has been made halal with an explicit proof from the Qur'an and the sunnah. So for example, every way of salah is prohibited except what the Prophet ﷺ made halal. Regarding mu'amalat, general social matters and dealings, it's the opposite principle. Everything is halal except that which is made haram with an explicit proof. So therefore, in relation to sexual activity between a husband and a wife in the institution of marriage, everything is halal, alhamdulillah. Except that which has been made explicitly haram by textual proofs, proofs from the Quran and the Sunnah. So we learn just on these three principles I've mentioned today. First, prohibited for you is having sexual intercur- intercourse while you are fasting in the month of Ramadan. Prohibited during the fasting hours, but allowed. Haram during the fasting hours. Halal in the nighttime hours. Okay. Prohibited for you is sexual intercourse when your wife is on her period. It is harmful, as Allah Ta'ala says. However, the Prophet Sallallahu said, you can pet her, you can have, uh, you know, uh, enjoy each other, just as long as it's not penetrative sex. Again, the halal and the haram is made clear. Last principle, go to your tilth as you will. The husband and wife can enjoy any manner of sexual practices, sexual positions. And again, this is really important. When I advise on conception, I've had, for example, men who have a disability that are trying to conceive through one position, Because they think that's the only way. And then I have to advise them, no, you can use other sexual positions. Okay? And likewise, if a a man is large and a female is small or vice versa, that's why we need this flexibility. Alhamdulillah. It's a mature way of dealing with this. Uh, And uh, so here the Prophet said, made the halal clear from the haram, the tayyib clear from that which is khaba'ith. And so therefore everything is halal except that which has been made haram with an explicit proof from the Qur'an and Sunnah. So the point I'm making here really is this. We do not provide good quality Islamic guidance. And remember, Islam is many, many, many cultures, many cultures. And all of these cultures have different variations, different ways to express themselves. We as Muslims brought up here in the West, born here, and socialised really in this society, have different kind of perspectives on these issues. What all of us have to do is try to reconcile it with what Islam actually teaches.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think another major part of you know the three sexual stages that you mentioned is that you know as Muslims we te- we have a tendency to overcomplicate things and simple things um, are made into major issues and they're not always taken you know back to the Quran and Sunnah and you also you know you mentioned a lot of reasons why we don't you know why there's a possibility why we don't talk about this sort of stuff and you know personally I feel that Islam is is such a modest religion, you know, in in a lot of ways, physically and you know, verbally in in speech and conduct, and etc. Um, so that could also be a contributing factor. But um, you also mentioned um, the difference the the difference between Islamic sex education and mainstream sex education is the concept of zina. But do you feel that another factor is that? in mainstream schools there are spaces to go um and talk like for example you have pastoral carers and you can get free sexual health advice do you feel that this is something that's missing from the muslim community uh
2: yeah absolutely absolutely you know what we have is a pattern and i and i come across this all the time as an advisor on this uh to education sector Muslim parents and actually parents of other socially conservative communities. So we've had gypsy traveler communities, we've had Pentecostal Christian communities, we've had Orthodox Jewish communities, actually people, it's generally the patterns of social conservatism, individuals pulling their children out of mainstream sex and relationship education in school because they feel that it does not, it conflicts with their values. And they actually have a right to do that because it's a non-mandatory aspect of the curriculum. I know the government trying to make it mandatory, but it's non mandatory. However, the requirement is if you do pull them out, you therefore have to provide an alternative. You have to provide an alternative sex and education curriculum. Now, this is where it comes down, is that parents don't do this because they just don't have that conversation with their kids, nor do many Masajid actually run these programs, nor are many Imams qualified to provide this type of pastoral care. And remember, the role of an Imam is not just to lead the prayers, 80% 80% of the function of an imam is pastoral care. It's talking about subjects like this and providing guidance to the flock in relation to these, these matters. So they're not really equipped to deal with it. So what does it do? We just don't provide it. And we don't provide a quality education which actually deals, contextualize it with what I call contemporary challenges. So for example, if we do not talk to our kids about pornography and the impact of pornography and the destructive nature of that pornography, they're just gonna come across it and they're gonna be affected by it. And if we do not tell them, boys and girls, that they have sexual desire, that as they go through puberty, they will have sexual attraction to others. And sometimes they will also have sexual confusion. And they will have, if we don't tell them that, then they're gonna something powerfully emotionally is taking place with them that they don't know how to manage. And it will become misdirected and that's what ha- this, is, this is this is the dilemma of the muslim space so we think and and then i have parents who say first there's there's two aspects of this paradox first is one group of muslim to say this subject should not be spoken about because if we speak about this subject then somehow we're going to sexualize children allah mustan absolutely not if you do not teach children from a very young age what allah Ta'ala says to protect your private parts we don't teach them the concept of what a private part is then how does a child know what is a private part and what is awrah and satr if you don't teach them? And I believe you should teach them at the age of five in the same way. Also, the verse in the Quran is very, very clear that, you know, tell the children to seek permission when they enter into uh, the bedroom. Now, the child will ask, why is that? And you just have to explain in an age appropriate way that mother and father Okay, have intimacy, and they need private time. This whole idea, you know, when Allah says in the Quran, li humli Protect your private parts from sexual activity. This is interesting. How does a child know what a private part is? You know, the NSPCC have a really good kind of uh, project around pants, yeah? You know, that, you know, you're... And, and the, it's actually a concept, which is Islamic, that, you know, that the private area should be covered. The concept of awr and satr. And if someone who's not allowed touches that private area inappropriately then you need to report that very important start what age four or five absolutely because a child should be aware that this is a private part and i had this discussion in a school where parents would not even let me use the word penis and vagina they were scared of these two words they said no you can't teach them this parents i said how did they learn how did they learn what uh, uh, you know a concept is it's all gonna destroy our inside. i said okay You've got to call it something. So shall we call it Lulla and Lully instead? Okay, and uh, you know, obviously this is the whole thing. It, it's, it's just become silly. So one group of parents in this dilemma don't even want to have this discussion. Don't even want to talk about it. Uh, it challenges them. I have parents saying, oh, you're going to destroy the innocence of my children. I said, no, you're destroying the innocence of your children by not talking about them in a mature way and not contextualize within the Islamic framework. So that's one group of people who you know you could say uh, are in complete denial uh the other group of people obviously are, are people that just absorb what is in the mainstream curriculum and just you know expose their children or are exposed to what's out there in the mainstream without actually checking whether this is in accordance with the kind of islamic principles and islamic values and are not able to access that guidance uh, themselves as well so you know don't know whether what they're doing is halal or haram sometimes they're not even bothered in other cases you know they they're just not able to even access that kind of kind of guidance and all of this is taking place in an environment where we are hypersexualized you know we are bombarded 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 with this material on a 24/7 basis
1: so going back to parenting i do feel that it has become sort of sugar-coated and um islamic discipline has become like almost soft so for example um children should exit the bedroom at seven or eight and they would start to question why um and parents wouldn't have necessarily have an answer but i strongly believe that if they're taught from a young enough age that's appropriate for them um they would already have an idea of why they're exiting the bedroom, what's happening to them and why their parents need to be alone. Um, you know, that is the wisdom of, of uh, Allah's regulations, of course. Um but I do feel that maturity is, is a really important aspect here. I mean, I talk to my younger brother in a very direct way about these kinds of things so that he knows, you know, what's happening and what could potentially happen so he doesn't feel hushed about it. And I often use um, the example of the Sahaba, you know, who were leaders and had huge responsibility and accountability. Um, And I feel that's an essential thing that has, has been lost in general in the ummah, but especially among the youth, that sense of accountability accountability that could could perhaps, you know, prevent them from doing uh, sort of ill behaviours.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you have uh, kind of addressed one of the core problems here. This is an issue of effective parenting and having, maintaining a good open relationship and dialogue with your children so that you connect with them and you talk to them about everything. Because as soon as they stop talking to you, it's not that there isn't an issue is that they're talking to someone else and you are no longer controlling the discussion. The other interesting aspect of this is that people seem to often misunderstand. The term discipline comes from the root, you know, in in English is from disciple, okay? And disciple means a student. And people don't realize discipline really means to teach, not to punish. However, our model of parenting is punitive, authoritarian. It's one way of communication. It's not registering understanding. We do not register understanding. We tell people, haram, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. It doesn't, And we don't realize we actually haven't taught anything. Discipline is about teaching. A disciple is a student, not a recipient of what I call punitive behavior or directives, told to do stuff. As a tu- student, you register learning. And uh, you know, people confuse discipline with physical punishment. This is the biggest problem in in our community. And you know, this is a subject. If you can talk about this subject, then you can talk about any subject with your kids. And and I always say, you know, I don't want to create a situation where, unfortunately, children disconnect from the the primary role models who are supposed to be in their life, their parents, and then reconnect. Unfortunately with the online space and with negative role models. And then once you've got that, you cannot control the discussion. Look, part of the, you know, look at this. You know, we, you, you mentioned earlier about the verse on hijab, but before the verse on hijab, Allah Ta'ala gives the hijab for men. Tell الْمُؤْمِنِينَ believing مِنْ أَبْصَارِهِمْ Tell the believing men to lower their gaze i.e. do not look at things inappropriately and indecently Protect their parts from sexual inappropriateness This is pure for them and Allah is aware of what they do This verse is a verse on what we call sexual respect Knowing boundaries, not violating the boundaries of females. Because look, before Allah Ta'ala tells the females to cover, He tells the men, sort out your behavior. Now, we lead the world in the principles around sexual respect. You know, this is the, this, this is, this is, you know, when men have these conduct and we socialize our young men, and that's why my PhD was on masculinity and transition boys to men, because I want to inculcate noble, Principles in masculine conduct Based on the prophetic masculinity Then you know We're respectful to females All females We don't objectify them We're not misogynists We give we respect their space Their boundaries uh, We don't make them feel uncomfortable We value them as You know Equal human beings Alhamdulillah So sexual respect here Is taught in the Quran But we're not teaching it we don't, we, we don't even engage in this subject Instead of us teaching this beautiful verse in the Qur'an Around sexual respect to men Treat women You know, And another verse Allah says بَعْدُهُمْ وَبَعْدُ You know, the believers men and women are awliya Helpers, friends, and protectors of one another Yeah Rather than teaching noble principles You know what we teach instead We teach this dichotomy Men are qawam Leaders over women and women are fitna. So we teach the other, you know, and this concept women is fitna, which is a selective verse mistranslated and misinterpreted, is that women are inherently evil. Women are inherently impure, temptresses, there to tempt men to, uh, you know, sexually inappropriate behavior. And that, uh, you know, women are the source of men's problems. Now, this is a complete. Incorrect because Islam always establishes agency upon the individual. You are responsible for your own actions. Don't blame anyone else. Yeah. And so this concept is a really distorted concept women are fitna. You know, it's a totally Because also Allah says your children are fitna. So does that mean that they are also inherently evil? And also Allah says wealth is a fitna. The term fitna is from the Arabic word fatan, which actually means that it's a trial to purify you. So it doesn't mean that women are inherently evil. And you know, this is the bizarre double global standard that we have. That, you know, women are blamed. We have this slut shaming. Women are blamed for the indiscrepancies of men. But this verse is so powerful. The verse is in Surah Al-Nur relating to the hijab. Because first Allah tells men, sort yourselves out. Be upright and moral and decent in your character. Have respect for yourself. And respect women. And respect the boundaries of women. Don't blame women because Allah ordered you first to lower the gaze. So Alhamdulillah, you know, these got beautiful principles in Islam. Unfortunately, we just don't teach them properly.
3: So, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, um, does Islam actually outline what intimacy is? Now, this is you know really controversial um and a couple of months ago a book came out called the Muslim sex manual and there was a huge uproar about whether it was needed or whether it was um appropriate yeah. now i haven't read it personally but one uh, friend that i was speaking to who has read it she's a biochemical uh, biochemistry student um she's a half and she's a student of knowledge and you know she um she read it before she was getting married. And she was thinking, she was like, you know, Minha, it's really opened my eyes. And she was saying, you know, even though I know all the halas and the harams and I, and I know the fixed side of that sort of thing, there was a lot that she didn't know. And it is really interesting. Um, but I actually want to know what your opinion was on, on things like that.
2: M- my thought is that I know the book was called The Muslim Guide Guided Dirty Sex. I think that's what it was called, yeah.
1: Okay, I didn't know and, that, but... uh... <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a provocative title. And I think, Alhamdulillah, absolutely brilliant. MashaAllah. We're talking about something in accordance with Islamic teaching. As I said, everything that I say, and when I say, I, I, I have a course, it's called The Joy of Muslim Sex, Love and Intimacy. And when I put this course out, people are provoked by the title. They say, Elias why have you called it that? I said, it's just a title the joy of Muslim sex, because sex is one of the great pleasures of life, Alhamdulillah, in marriage. And I'm, I'm you know, nothing, no shame with saying that it's something beloved, you know, in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he would say that, you know, three things were beloved and his wives were beloved to him, SubhanAllah. So I, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing part that two human beings share in the institution of marriage, Alhamdulillah. And so I said, and this should be a source of joy. And I have shown through my work, That when individuals have fulfilled in the sexual aspect It elevates their spirituality It elevates their iman and taqwa, alhamdulillah Okay And they have a greater connection between each other It connects them with the creator, alhamdulillah You know, even at the time of ejaculation there is a du'a, Allahumma inni a'udh bika uh, minal, you know, Allahumma inni a'udh bika minal, jannab al wa jannab al ma'arazaktana. You know, so, you know, it talks about, you know, even at this time, you're supposed to make a du'a, subhanAllah, intrigue. So this is how, inti- you know, the intimate details that Islam goes into. So 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 the point I'm making here is this, yeah, that, uh, you know, when I run my course, The Joy of Muslim Sex, Love and Intimacy, People are kind of, and and the people who come to the course and they say it has transformed their life. I I, I wish I could run it more often. Again, this is just about supply and demand. I'm busy with lots of other aspects of my work, which are more serious, you know, to an extent. But, you know, every time I do it, people say, you've changed my life. You've liberated me. And the women come to the course as well, because I have no problem. The women going through the material as well, because the Prophet would take questions from females. And, uh, you know, we have obviously appropriate etiquette and adab, alhamdulillah, in this matter, because they need to know about it. And sisters have said it likewise. They've been completely liberated. They've been, you know, this has improved their lives, improved their marriage, you know, and and made them feel much more happy and fulfilled emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Uh, And so this is so important. And when we have good quality Islamic sex manuals out there, which do two things, and what I've done is that I've gone... And i've looked at all of the existing manuals and i've then used islamic principles to find out what is halal what is haram what is acceptable what is unacceptable so we have what we call a filtering process this is a really good positive thing which actually enriches the lives of muslims now one of the amusing things is every time i do the joy of muslim sex and we put out the poster and i we used to do it on facebook and we'd have all these individuals, astagfirullah, astagfirullah, how can you talk about this subject? Oh, this is out of order, out of order. Why are you doing this? You're promoting bad things. I said, subhanAllah, nearly 30 years I've been teaching in this community. People come to my halaqah, tell me, prove to me how I do something, why, I would, why I'd want to promote something outside of the institution of Islam and outside of the institution of the Quran and Sunnah and Sharia. Why would I want to do such a thing, subhanAllah? You know, just because you are close minded and ignorant of what Islam actually teaches in this matter. And I've actually done the deep research to actually find out what it is based on Islamic texts and resources. You know, and I'm presenting this, I'm teaching and educating the Muslim community based on what is out there in the Quran and Sunnah. Now, one <laughs> of the person said, okay, then fine, I accept that. But can't you call it something else, the Islam sex course or... Islamic and Some people don't even like The use of the word sex I don't know. Why do you have to call it The joy of Muslim sex I said subhanAllah Because it is something Which is a matter of joy And uh, uh, it, You know But i tell you what I said to that brother i said, I tell you what When I deliver it To your community We'll call it The misery of Muslim sex Yeah So you know Just so that you feel that Oh You know It's not something to To enjoy You know There's still this attitude That we have in our community That this is not something To be enjoyed it's bizarre.
1: I think people have a preconceived misconception when they hear the word sex, joy and satisfaction and immediately it means something rude and filthy and you know it can't be associated to Islam or a gathering of pure Muslims.
2: No, no, you're absolutely right. They have this puritanical idea that is actually non-Islamic. It's cultural. It's based on whether their cultural values are. It's not actually derived from Islam. When I showed that that verse in the Quran, I explained it. And I explained it according to the tafsir of Ibn Abbas, which is in Ibn Kathir, where he said very clearly, you know, in the vagina, not in the anus. Every position is allowed. It goes into explicit detail. You know, and the Quran is not an inappropriate book. Now, to even entertain that would be disbelief so therefore it's your false sense of sensibility it's your false modesty this is false modesty this is not true modesty what i'm promoting is true modesty because what i'm promoting is you know healthy sexual behavior within the institution of marriage because i know through 30 years of casework nearly that when you do not encourage healthy behavior Within a healthy framework of marriage, you encourage haram behavior outside of that. So they want to promote what you call false modesty. They want to create this double life, which is that see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's their methodology essentially, which is that, okay, you know, we don't see it. There's no problem. Alhamdulillah, it's cool because everything's brushed under the, side, the, the carpet. But let me tell you, next 10 years, I've been saying it in so many of my talks at the moment, we are going to have a, the lid, the lid is well and truly off. We're going to have such a massive challenge with sexualization in the Muslim community. We are just not prepared with it because we, because no one cares now. People have gone past, it's like a tipping point of, like I said, where people have realized, okay, we'll do as we will. That's that Hadith is well known? If you feel no shame, do as you will. And we've gone past that tipping point because of the nature of young people being bombarded in social media with hypersexualized material, and that's providing no halal alternative. You know, then of course expect fitna, expect what is haram to take place. So no, I'm actually dealing with the I'm dealing with the problem, trying to create Islamic solutions, and they're in denial and and, and promoting false modesty.
1: So, how does everything that we have spoken about today? How does it affect marriage, and um, how does it affect the marital relationship?
2: Okay, one of the things uh, I would say is this: every couple who's going to get married, they need to go on an Islamic sex education course before that, or a relationship course. They need to know what the Islamic etiquettes are. They need to come to one of my courses or someone else. I'm not just promoting my course here. I'm just saying go and get good quality education and guidance in relation to that so that you start off on a healthy foundation. And now look, still you find many, many couples out there that they don't know anything about it. Their first night experience is a horrific, terrible experience. They're virgins, alhamdulillah. And yet no one's really spoken to them. They feel uncomfortable. They feel, uh, it's not always the case, but it's still quite a significant number of cases. And I've had individuals who I've coached through the wedding night, told them about the sensitivities and look one of the things i want to make it absolutely clear for a new couple you do not have to have sexual intercourse you do not have to make love on the first night absolutely you don't have to do it okay you know take your time take your time take your time get to know it. it's actually a very bizarre thing i have to say it's a bizarre thing that two people who essentially don't know each other you know have sexual intercourse and for you know, sometimes the male feels uncomfortable about it and sometimes because they have pushed it and he's not ready. Often the female feels very uncomfortable about it. And sometimes she says, well, it feels almost like it was forced. And I don't like that first beautiful experience for this young couple to be destroyed. It's got to be done in the right way because no one in in, in the course that I run, I have losing your virginity. I do it you know actually i don't call it losing virginity actually that's the wrong term because losing your virginity devalues what it's all about it's like you're losing something yeah but i talk about you know the 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 etiquettes of the of the first night and you know your first experience yeah, and how to you know, do this in a in a way which is really healthy and is going to be a beautiful experience for two people. Again, no one will talk about it. So I've had individuals who I've kind of coached through that in it, through that particular experience, and then also we have individuals who then later on start having problems in the marital aspects and in intimacy aspects. Again, sometimes the fizz goes out and the spark goes out. And again, this is an area where you need advice, you need guidance, you need support so that you can maintain that and uh you know continue to to have the enjoyment and the satisfaction which comes from you know halal sexual activity so it's so important that you know the guidance the support is there for individuals and they feel that they can have someone to talk to and we have good quality educational resources so you know i developed the boys to men program uh you know over like i said nearly 15 years ago, which was a transition program for boys going through puberty and also the girls to women so that we have age appropriate material for kids. And then we also have the 18 plus program and the pre-marriage program. So the programs are all there. It's just a matter of getting out there and ensuring that people are able to deliver them. And then that brings the second challenge. In order to deliver this program, you need both the Islamic guidance and also you need the guidance in relation to sex and relationship education. And sometimes people don't have both of those particular experiences or their competencies and knowledge uh, kind of basis. And uh, so therefore, you know, they might teach it purely theoretically from, an, uh, from what we call a uh, theological perspective, but they also need to re- kind of contextualize that within current reality and current kind of uh, uh, kind of social uh, and kind of cultural contexts as well so you've got to contextualize the course well in order for it to connect really well with the learner and also because of my casework as well and i relate many many cases that i work with in, and and scenarios and permutations the other important challenge that we have is that we need more female educators out there you know if someone asks me i need a female sexual health educator islamic sexual health educator I don't know any. I only know one really brilliant sister who's doing this, but she's working in Canada, you know. And the actual number of people who are doing this in the UK are very, very few. So we need more educators out there.
1: MashaAllah, it sounds like you're already, you know, getting things moving and, you know, you've already uh, got the ball rolling. But what dy- dynamics do you think need to be changed in our communities to open up a safe space and Enable young adults to participate in, you know, in a free dialogue about these sorts of issues.
2: Okay, first is that we have to overcome this uh, cultural barrier, which immediately reacts to re- this what I call reactive mindset. As soon as we talk about it, people react and they say, "Oh, haram, haram," and they think that this is being imposed on them by a government agenda, by a liberal agenda, by a permissive agenda, and they immediately go into the defensive mode uh, that this is something which is not islamic and even talking about this subject you know is as you i know, say حيا, is بي غير بي غير حيا, or <laughs> i actually remember once i was talking in the, in the masjid yeah and an elder as soon as i just mentioned the word he got up and he was really angry why are you doing why no 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 you're not supposed to be talking about it. i said i'm mentioning a verse of the quran <laughs> and he was really offended yeah Subhanallah. so Got to change that attitude create uh, a mature environment to talk about this particular issue second as i said develop educators and good quality resources on this particular subject which is age appropriate And I've seen some of the resources out there. And I think that I said at the early part of my discussion, there's two elements to this. Yes, there's the Islamic moral principle. Some people just go too heavy on the moral and theological and they forget what I call the social pedagogical, which is that this is also about contextualizing those moral principles appropriately and living in the real world, not in an Islamic bubble. Okay, I'm not an Islamic bubble person, which means that I somehow insulate myself from what's actually going on. Talk about real stuff. And don't just talk about, you know, what just affirms your own narrow kind of view of the world. So, good quality educators, good quality resources. The the third thing, which is really important, is this. As you and I have identified, this is a massive global problem. We haven't even started talking about pornography, and uh, you know, other aspects of this particular discussion, sexual problems, sexual dysfunction. We haven't even started talking about that. So, just dealing with this first element of the discussion, we need resources. We need resources to do that i had to close down muslimsexadvice.com because i just have didn't have the resources to maintain it so we need good quality investment into this area of work uh, again very few people are specialists who have both the kind of you could say the worldly knowledge in this matter but contextualized within the islamic kind of context so you know we uh, need to put investment in there to develop expertise resources and the professionalism to to deal with this particular challenge last thing relate, you know is this stop burying your heads in the sand you know the horse has well and truly bolted uh you know when i do this presentation uh i put up some screenshots these screenshots are Scott, uh, screenshots of a very inappropriate conversation that takes place on whatsapp between some individuals all boys talking about females uh, i i'm not gonna you know can i be explicit in the language that's mentioned in these screenshots yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, i think this is this is the whole point of it really yeah
2: okay yeah because sometimes you know when i when i do this again people you know think oh i'm just being sensationalist no this is it so it goes to this the screenshot is i like pussy i'm crazy about pussy and the official pussy club uh so and so is a lesbian Ha <laughs> ha okay i shagged your mum last night ha 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 i know aksa is a retard she's a penis sucker f you aksa and this goes on for pages and pages of this now some people might say this is your normal banter male banter between young men, you know, who are clearly, you know, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, pubescent, even adult males have this kind of banter and probably much, much more explicit and much worse. I've actually held back in some of the kind of comments there. As you can see, the individuals in this are called all Muslim boys. And I suppose we're not shocked by the fact that this kind of banter takes place. If I told you that they are nine and ten-year-old boys talking like this. So-and-so's so, so and so's mom's a lesbian. so I shagged so-and-so last night. Uh, she is a penis sucker. And, you know, this is nine and ten-year-old boys having this conversation. And that in itself indicates that the horse is well and truly bolted. I know what's constructed these boys and their negative sexual attitudes. It's Grand Theft Auto, watching gaming, YouTube, social media that they're being exposed to, complete lack of parental influences. These are the same parents who pull their kids out of sex education classes, because they think it's un-Islamic, but they don't know that their own children are involved in these X-rated explicit conversations. You know, when a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old says that so-and-so is a penis sucker, he doesn't really understand what that's about. He's just mimicking behavior that he's absorbed from maybe peers or older people. The point I'm making here is this. This is, now, now some people would say, oh, that's an extreme case. But I'm finding the extreme cases are becoming normal, are becoming the norm, are becoming the mainstream. And the other thing is this. I'll give you a really interesting story that someone told me about, a head teacher told me. A Muslim parent pulled her children, 10-year-olds, you know, out of the sex education class at school because, of course, you know she was saving them from all of this haram influence. That child is inquisitive. That child has a mind which will always question, find out, oh, what, why have I been pulled out? Why have I been pulled out? So the child went back into the class. And what do you think the child did when they went back into that class afterwards? except ask, what, was the, what were you talking about? And then that child cleverly started saying to the other kids, I know what you were talking about. I know what you were talking about. And they said, what were you talking about? He says, I know now that girls have penises and boys have vaginas. Okay, so the point, the point is this, that if, unless we give them the right guidance, they're going to put everything the wrong way around. So he listened to his peers and they're saying, someone told him, yeah, oh, I think boys have uh, vaginas and girls have uh, penises, yeah, and that's it. He's just taking <laughs> So the, can you see the point? It's, it's, a, it's a funny story, yeah. but the point I'm saying is this. You might have pulled your child out, but your child will then go into an environment where they are still exposed to the same peers who are hyper. And unless, the, you know, you, because then you go to the extreme, and that's what we're finding, where people will then put their child into a complete cocoon. And what I find is I have a pattern of many, many boys, Muslim boys and girls, who then eventually come out of the bubble when they're 17 and 18, because the parents put them out of the bubble at eight, 17, 18. And then they come into the world so ill-prepared to deal with contemporary challenges and they're even more at risk of harmful behavior. Education is power. Knowledge is power, but only if it's implemented and only if it's kind of cultivated appropriately and maturely in our kids.
1: JazakAllah for your time time and effort I feel like it's been such a beneficial uh, discussion but just before we finish um, we do have a couple of questions that people have sent in Um, I'm not sure if you were able to answer all of them but I'll read them out anyway because I feel like it's important for our listeners to hear about other people's experiences so our first one is a bit sensitive but the sister who sent it in um, was adamant that she wanted people to hear about her experiences as there may be others that are going through um, the same and they would be to benefit also okay good so this is what she said assalamualaikum my self-harm keeps happening my i have dreams of my abuse and i dream about old men raping me and astaghfirullah i wake up aroused i feel so dirty that i end up scratching myself i've asked allah numerous times to help me but these dreams keep happening what would you suggest
2: Okay, first, may Allah Taala, inshallah, preserve and protect you. May Allah Taala enable you to overcome the difficulties and challenges that you have, and may Allah ta'ala give you, uh, you know, safety. May Allah Taala give you tranquility, and may Allah give you peace. I mean, yeah. and what I say first and foremost, sister, and all victims of sexual abuse have to realise they are not to blame. Part of the sexual abuse process is also emotional abuse and emotional confusion that sometimes the individuals do not know actually what's happened to them. Sometimes they are made to feel really special by the abuser and the groomer, and so this creates very, very challenging emotional issues with themselves as well. Sometimes they then disclose it to others who then completely reject them and do not take them seriously in any way whatsoever so then they therefore you could say doubly rejected they're a victim of terrible horrendous abuse that persists on occasions and not just one-off institutes and this is children children who are being raped now we, we have to and then they go to trusted adults and these adults will reject them because that individual maybe is an intimate uh, someone who's known to them even a family member and uh, and therefore they feel they have no one to talk to and they feel completely alone as a result of it and the families don't want to deal with it because they realize that it will bring shame on the family individuals who are family members will be in prison i dealt with a case recently where i had to ensure that uh, girls made this complaint and the individual has been charged and this is something which is very, very difficult, no doubt, but it had to be done. It has to be done. Otherwise that individual will operate with impunity and can continue to do that. So the victim should not be blamed. The victim should not be shamed and made to feel they are the ones to blame for this. And this will go on. And I have worked with survivors who in their 30s and 40s finally disclosed the experience that they had. And then they can go from, Being a victim to a survivor to then actually thriving and overcoming the abuse that they experience so number one you are not to blame it's so important and we have to show solidarity with those who are mazlun who have been oppressed and have been harmed and stand with you and not deny what you've been through but give you the support that you need number two get help don't be ashamed of what's happened every time i sit with someone one of my clients, and they tell me, and they disclose. I always say, what you've done is so courageous, is so brave, that you've spoken about something that n- most people just bury and don't and live in denial with, and don't want to deal with. Okay, and that's part of freeing yourself, obviously, from the the, the that the, the trauma of that particular experience. So the point two is get help get counseling from a reputable counselor who knows how to deal with sexual abuse not someone who's not qualified as well unfortunately we find some people who are not qualified to deal with it sometimes can cause more harm here as well so get help get support and you know start your journey of recovery third is obviously always put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seek Allah's help purify yourself through, you know, obviously trying to put as much tawakkul and reliance upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And look, Allah says in the Quran, "Wala taqna tu min rahmatillah." Inna Allah يَقْفِرُ ذُنُوبَ Allah says, never despair of the hope of Allah Ta'ala. Don't give up. Allah is always there for you. Allah will never abandon you. Allah will send people to put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seek your assistance. sabr through prayer. And through maintaining that kind of uh uh you could say uh observance of your religion. And the last thing is this we've got to create a culture of openness. This coming uh Tuesday on the 7th of November, we're we'll doing the launch of our project in Bradford called De Stigma. And I did it in Birmingham when I was there, I touched on elements of it, De stigma. Well, we're saying that do not stigmatize people who are human beings like ourselves, who have been Through mental health difficulties or sexual abuse or domestic violence, why are we stigmatizing the victims? And why are the perpetrators, the ones who are powerful, stigmatizing the ones who are weak? And why are we going along with it? It's about silence kills. We've got to break the walls of silence and talk about stuff, okay, within obviously our Islamic framework so that people feel supported. And when we do so, then, sister, And other individuals will come forward because they know that there will be people who will support them. I'm not reject them
1: mashallah i'm sure that's that'll be really beneficial um to the sister but i also just wanted to add that um in my experience of working with you know uh um, victims of sexual abuse they you know they experience a lot of similar things um but they don't make but because they they feel like because they've been ab- um, aroused um they can't say that it's a nightmare but just because you're getting aroused it doesn't mean that it's any less than than a nightmare and you should treat it like a nightmare it's Islamically as well so you should get up you do your wudu you do your um, noafil and and things like that in order to protect yourself holistically
2: absolutely i think i think what's important is to recognize this is a traumatic experience and because look this is the thing it's a very complex area of work everyone reacts differently to sexual abuse and trauma uh, some children become sexualized as a result of this experience because they just don't know what's happened to them and the way that they've been groomed and nurtured kind of through the whole process yeah confuses them about what happens and then especially if it's at a significant age of transition where then brain chemicals such as dopamine and oxytocin all combine together to actually anchor This particular behavior and then an individual then continues to seek their self-esteem through sexualized behavior which is again another manifestation of the abuse so some children go down that particular channel other children for example are completely become introverted as a result of it because it's horrifying and traumatizing and it's you know it's terrifying for them what they go through and every time they see triggers it takes them back to that space of being scared and traumatized by the event each child reacts very very difficult differently to that situation but absolutely you're right the dreams that are a manifestation of this sub- through your subconscious these the terrible experiences that you are having as a result of it and it's also important uh, that i find is that this is why i said qualified individuals that certain individuals say the reason you're having these dreams are because of jinn and of course we don't deny and that's why we have the ayatul quraysh and the quls and the mu'awwidhatayn we recite these things to obviously protect ourselves from these uh, elements but here there's a clear what we call you know uh, root cause yeah it's the abuse you know and sometimes people persist with you know a particular explanation when the explanation is clearly something else uh, and that's why it's important as well to to seek professional guidance from qualified people
1: Alhamdulillah. So now we have two more questions from a young brother and sister who are both uh, 15 and subhanallah. They practically sent in um, identical questions. So I'm just going to combine and paraphrase their questions.
3: Okay. Okay.
1: So both of them said that they have high sex drives and Islamically they know that pornography is wrong, but they still watch pornography and they masturbate. Then they feel guilty and they self-harm and it turns into a vicious cycle. Both have said that they're moderately practicing, so they do their salah, the Quran, and, and they fast and they do charity as much as they can, as much as they can. Um, and mashallah the brother actually said that he tries to fast Mondays and Thursdays, but he can't due to school hours and exams etc and both have asked what advice can you give them and, and the guilt process that they go through.
2: It is. Unfortunately, you know, guilt is a very negative emotion and it doesn't actually lead to productive emotion. It flips from guilt to anger and frustration you know it doesn't go to wasitiya look allah says we have made you the balanced nation so we're always between extremes we don't believe in promiscuity and permissiveness everything anything goes we don't believe in celibacy and abstinence we're in the middle way which is everything is done in the halal way okay through the institution of uh, a marriage here we have two young people who obviously yes every individual has a unique sex drive every individual has a unique social experience some children have greater kind of uh, sexual desire others have less others can control some can't control that's just the nature of it you can't have a one size fits all and likewise with regards to males and females there's an idea that males somehow have a sex drive and have a strong kind of sexual urge and females somehow don't have any no females do have it as well so you know that's the reality of it and of course they unfortunately are manifesting this in an inappropriate medium because they haven't had guidance in terms of how to channel that energy one of the things i say through transitional years 13 and 15 of course fasting is important and the whole religious observances are important but again you're talking about people here who are religiously observant but still find it difficult to maintain control because you've got to realize you know in the time of the prophet and this is you've got to understand the context it's still that society was a more modest controlled society a more dignified society it wasn't a society of absolute bombardment with 24-7 sexualized, hyper-sexualized influences. It wasn't. Okay. Of course, you can isolate yourself away. But once you've been influenced by it, then, of course, unfortunately, this is, has such a powerful psychological and neurological effect. Watching pornography, and if you look at my video on it, and perhaps we can do another show when I talk about the brain on porn. Okay. So we'll maybe leave that for another show. But... Uh, but when you look at the neurological effect what it shows is that it creates chemical pathways in the brain it actually alters brain chemistry it anchors this material clearly you have it's imprinted into the brain and once you've seen it once it's profoundly addictive and it will be a pull factor always back to that material you're always pulled back to it And uh, it's not enough to say it took Allah, it took Allah, fear Allah and all this. Of course we fear Allah. And this person does fear Allah, but they're still being pulled back to it. That's what this boy and this girl essentially want to do is be sexually active. However, they can't get married. Okay, because one, they're under the age of consent, under the age of 16. Okay, that's first. So we have to observe the law in this country, of course. And uh, second is that, uh, you know, there's no way their parents are going to get them, allow them to be married either. You know, subhanAllah, my solution is very simple. And we I can predict what's going to happen with both of these individuals. Unless you provide a halal outlet, they will continue in a haram outlet. And they will continue. They will continue and escalate in this behavior. They will not de-escalate, they will escalate. Now, you can bury your head in the sand and say, oh, and some people say, oh, well, we told them if they're going to do haram, then that's their business. No, I need to create a solution that's going to be helpful for them for their long-term adult life, you know? So my advice would be very simple. At the age of 16, parents should allow them to have an Islamic marriage. It's allowed. Nothing in Islam says that two 16-year-olds can't get married and do an Islamic nikah with one another. Nothing says. No law in this country says that. Both over the age of 16, so therefore they're above the age of consent so, therefore, they can engage in legal sexual activity. It's not statutory rape. It is statutory rape if the one of the individuals is under the age of 16. That is considered a statutory rape because, obviously, the age of consent is 16. Okay, so over the age of 16, alhamdulillah, if they have an Islamic nikah, get married, then people say, oh, but he won't be able to support it. Well, he doesn't necessarily have to. You can have restrictions in terms of what the nature of the Islamic contract is. Okay. Now, when I and, and also people say, "Oh, what if they have kids?" Well, that's what we have contraception for. And when I say this, "Oh, contraception is haram." Stop. Again, contraception is allowed within Islam, Subhanallah. Okay, you know, it was practiced in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu so Alaihi Wasallam. They practiced it is uh, the withdrawal method. Yeah. So look, it's a, it is something which is allowed. Secondly, they don't have to have kids. So, you know, they can maintain this what we call halal boyfriend and girlfriend relationship. Now, whenever I mention this in the Muslim community, people are outraged. They're outraged by it. Oh, how can you allow this? How can you allow this? It's halal. I've given you a halal solution. There's nothing haram about what I've just said. In fact, this is exactly the way it was done in the time of the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Okay? But you would rather be in denial of that, and then as a result of that, both of these people will end up. And you know what, subhanAllah, I know the statistics of abortion rates in Tower Hamlets. Tower Hamlets has one of the highest Muslim population Uh, It has the highest Muslim proportion in the country By way of percentage Population, yeah And uh, Mm -hmm. The rates of terminations Are also One of the highest in the country Now one can uh, So so what does it mean? It means that girls are being sexually active Muslim females are sexually active And are having abortions And I've had cases where females There have had multiple abortions Okay, so You know, the point is, is all of this comes back to the bury your head in the sand kind of mentality, not working out Islamic solutions. Okay. And then this is the thing, because when you allow it for one person and people say, oh, we want to do that as well. And then obviously it kind of undermines what we call cultural norms. It preserves Islamic values, but not cultural norms. You know, and this is not Islamic gymnastics either, where I'm twisting Islam to fit into it. No, I'm actually providing a solution for these two young people who want to engage in activity, but if they are prevented, will end up in harmful and haram activity. I'm trying to provide solutions.
1: What practical tips for now would you suggest or advise
2: on? Okay, practical tips are first and foremost, uh, you know uh let's establish good quality education programs which are contextualized within islamic framework number two let's have good quality mentoring and uh uh, one-to-one guidance for individuals as well number three let us work out create practical solutions to deal with contemporary challenges in our muslim community provide safe spaces so people can have these conversations without being judged, without being labeled, without being stigmatized, without being made to feel lesser and uh, ashamed. Also recognize this is not just a male-centric issue. because that's the other thing. Oh, this is just a male-man problem. No, recognize this is for Muslim males and for Muslim females, okay? Because both of men and women, unfortunately, you know, are negatively affected and we need both men and women to have positive guidance uh not to bury our heads in the sand and be in total denial about what's going on and uh recognize that you know people have to be there for young people and have Mm. conversations with them at critical junctures in their development and if we do not we're not if we're not there then unfortunately you know young people are going to be bereft of the guidance that they need and look whenever i talk to young people They say to me that this is all that I want. This is what I want more than just an older person to talk to about what I'm going through without being judged, without being labeled, and who's able to help me navigate this complex landscape out there.
1: I think um acknowledging the problem is a really important um part of the process. And you know, mashallah, these young people have had the courage to actually talk um to talk about it, which you know, it couldn't have been easy. But I think once acknowledged, you can mentally map out your your next step. And my personal tips would be, you know, to stay stay busy but a productive busy and also a you mentioned a few times throughout the podcast is we live in a hyper sexualized uh, um, society um, and a lot of that is driven through social media so I would have a complete declutter of social media to you know eliminate inappropriate things or images or videos or hashtags etc that could lead to more unhealthy behaviors okay so we have one more question Okay, um, excellent. this excellent. is from a sister who said I have been in a relationship for seven years and me and my boyfriend started out halal we spoke now and again since I've gotten a better phone we've been talking more um, which has now led to facetiming and whatsapp calls and now we regularly have phone sex although we try to abstain it keeps copping back into conversation we both know it's wrong but we don't know how to avoid it we've tried to speak to our parents about marriage but they've said we're too young we've tried to stop talking but it doesn't work. I'm worried that it will soon turn physical as we've started to talk about meeting in person. What do you think I should do?
2: Well, look, uh, that is a, such a brilliant question from the sister, and I um, commend her for her honesty and you know from just facing up to reality. And you can see the challenge and the dilemma that she has. And we can also predict exactly what's going to happen. Okay, if we have two scenarios here. So you're right, two young people, both of whom are clearly sexually attracted to one another, both of whom who obviously, and and, and look, this is sexual attraction at the moment. It's not really what we call emotional kind of connection. You know, there is an emotional connection there. What I'm talking about is that, you know, young people still are immature, perhaps in relationships terms anyway, but it is what it is. So you've got two people who are clearly going from talking to having much more sexualized interaction and obviously having phone sex uh and clearly that they are being aroused by that there's a stronger pull factor inevitably they will meet and it will become physical you know let's not kind of be in denial of that this is what's going to lead now they do want to get a halal solution to it but unfortunately as i said the dilemma is that their parents will never allow them to have a halal solution so so therefore what's going to happen you know, I had a case a couple of years ago where two 15-year-olds, I think about 16-year-olds, something like that, they, they did a DIY nikah. They actually did a Google DIY nikah, And obviously one of them got pregnant. And, you know, so I don't know why they didn't do DIY contraception as well. But they did DIY nikah, Okay. And uh, so, uh, uh, and then, I, you know, because they were so desperate to do it in the halal way. You know, that uh, unfortunately, you know, it ended up turning in a bit of mess. Because, you know, you can't expect 216 16 16-year-olds really to have the full maturity to sometimes deal with something.
0: You have to
1: appreciate their sincerity there, mashallah.
2: Yeah, no, no, abs- abs- absolutely. That's the thing, you know. And I, and so, so you know, they want to to uh, uh, do it in a halal way. So what I'm saying is that currently they're on a trajectory of haram. So let's let's be absolutely clear about that. So what do we do? We can go and go all haram police on them, haram haram. Don't do this. Fear Allah. Fast. You know. Make sure you worship. You know. You might be some magic that's done to you or something like this. And uh, you know. So, but that will again not solve any problem. It will just mask the problem. They will lead even more of a double life where they will be able to cover up and show one face and then engage in haram behavior outside of that space. I have to say the only solution is that they get married. Now, I'm going to say something which people might not like, uh, but I am I am dealing with the current reality. We know one of the conditions of the marriage is a consent of the wali. The wali is not allowing the children to get married, the, the, uh, the, them to get married because for whatever cultural reason, and these children are going to do haram, then I believe it becomes wajib on them to do the marriage to do so that they do halal. So I will do the nikah. And I'll do the nikah. And probably have some angry parents coming around trying to deal with me. Yeah, but I'll say to them, and I will look at them and say, "You know what? Okay, you should be ashamed of yourselves because I had to ensure that your children follow the halal way, where you just wanted them to do, could persist with the haram, just so long as you didn't see it." So, so much for your honor and so much for your dignity and uh, righteousness. Now, the point here is this: you know, of course, you know we have to deal with the contemporary challenge. Parents are not allowing children to get married for un-Islamic reasons, for the wrong justification. And what we find is that, you know, there are kind of broadly two categories of people. There are one group of young Muslims out there and adult Muslims out there who just don't care about Islam. You know, they don't care about what Islam teaches, they're just doing what they want. There's another group, and that's a different, difficult group to kind of connect with, yeah, because obviously they're not even, uh, at all motivated by islamic principles but then there's another group of muslims out there young people and adults who do want to follow islam who want to do everything in the halal way but are being obstructed from doing so by external factors parents and cultural norms and things like that this second group of people we have to facilitate the halal solution which is nikah and just to finish with this point when we make nikah hard you make zina easy or more prevalent and when we make nikah accessible for people to engage in then of course this avoids the opportunity for zina so the solution is very clear it's alhamdulillah nikah get get you know make sure that you have an islamic marriage
1: allah so again for for your time and start I feel that it's been an incredibly insightful um, and I'm sure all of our, our listeners will agree we've managed to discuss um, a lot of things that maybe our our listeners wouldn't be able to hear on a daily basis so mashallah. um is there anywhere our listeners can contact you or find out more about the work that you do or are you on social media
2: uh, j- this is an important point as, as you can see i i have I'm overwhelmed with my cases and i and i generally prioritize what i call very complex cases where there's trauma and abuse and things like that so i deal with the hard end but i am very keen now to ensure that i teach and develop other pastoral leaders mentors teachers informal educators so inshallah let's create a movement where we educate and teach others so that they can actually provide that counseling guidance and support an organization such as yourself in conjunction with sharing voices uh who are a more established kind of mental health organization can inshallah hopefully provide a comprehensive service for our community so this is a project you know and uh, so what i would say is that if individuals have concerns obviously contact and spirited minds and uh, you know obviously if there are things that you can manage that's great if not then you know i'm happy to give provide some advice guide, guidance and support in relation to those cases
3: and um are you on social media
2: i don't do any social media <laughs> and there's a reason why because of uh i i believe uh, that uh, anyway that's a separate discussion in itself uh but i'm not on facebook or twitter or any social media
3: Okay, Masha. So great.
2: I prefer mean, I, like... I preferred I, pre- I prefer to do things in the real world. Okay. With real pe- real people and real conversations. Alhamdulillah. You see the so- social media I believe unfortunately has a very is a very positive aspect to it absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. But I think overwhelmingly it has a more of a negative aspect to that. And I think that it creates an environment where there actually, there's much more misinformation than information that goes out. I, 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 this is a serious point. You know, let us be guided by people who actually have years and years of qualification and experience and not by people who can talk about stuff. You know, this is the, this is a bit, you know, it seems somehow people are swayed by an emotive argument rather than a qualified argument. And I've seen so many people advise matters on social media, that they are ill qualified uh, to do to deal with and giving wrong guidance, and that's why you know uh, you know uh, I don't want to add to the whole quagmire of mm-hmm. uh, you know kind of information overload. Uh, you know I think what we need is good quality accessible projects which can provide quality advice. That's my my approach to life.
1: Alhamdulillah JazakAllah khair again And to our listeners I hope you have all benefited May Allah protect us And make all our affairs easy Ameen So next month Our podcast is going to be around bereavement If any of you have questions About anything death related Or you know anything about bereavement uh, Please do email us on info At inspirationminds.org.uk. And until then alaikum wa 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 barakatuh.
0: Nabi Allah, He said, Zamiloni, the the a mighty task has come before me. I need you here with me, by my side, by my side, by my side.